I received this, this sentence as I expected and tried to, to control my feelings, not to show that I am afraid. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. Back in the 1970s, migrating from the Soviet Union was an unattainable dream for many, particularly Jews wanting to leave for Israel. To leave the Soviet Union for another country, it was necessary to obtain exit visas. In practice, many people found them impossible to get. On the morning of June 15th, 1970, 16 Soviet Jews who had been refused exit visas appeared at Smolny Airport near Leningrad. They posed as a group going to a wedding, hence the name of the operation. The plan was devised a year before the attempted hijacking and was quite straightforward. They would target a small plane, book all the seats on it and then commandeer the aircraft and leave the pilots behind, unharmed on the landing strip, while one of the conspirators would take control of the plane and fly it to Sweden. I speak with filmmaker Anat Zalmansen Kuznetsov, whose film Operation Wedding reveals the compelling and powerful story of her parents, who were the leaders of the group. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hello there, my name's Andrew and I live in North London. I make a small contribution every month to Cold War Conversations because the stories are so good, they make the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And that's good enough for me. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Anat Zalmansen-Kuznetsov and the voices of many others to our Cold War conversation. When I was five years old, I was staying at a friend's place and suddenly we, we watched TV the news with her parents and suddenly I see my mom and the newscast guy is saying, you know, she's a hero. She hijacked the plane. And this is what I remember, like those headlines, you know, and I was so proud of my mom. She was on TV (laughs) as a five-year-old. And then I also remember as a student in, in, in elementary school, then the teachers would say, would ask me to get up and say, you know, Anat's parents are heroes, and Anat, you should tell the story. And I have no idea what they're talking about. You know, it was very... Uh, so I think, but I think maybe it gave me an inspiration to tell the story later in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're fed up with telling it yourself. You say, go see the film. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about your parents. My parents have very different backgrounds. The complete opposite. My father was born in Moscow uh, to an assimilated family, and um, he was not aware that he is Jewish. It was a very communist environment, but he understood that he's Jewish by himself. Um, he didn't look Jewish, you know. He didn't, uh, so so he somehow understood by himself. 
and he declared everywhere that he's Jewish and he was like fighting people about it, you know, because uh, that's that's what happens in the Soviet Union at that time. Being a Jew was, that's like the worst thing you can imagine, you know. And so he was brought up in this environment. And my mother, on the other hand, she was brought up in uh, Riga, Latvia. Latvia was uh, really recently been occupied by Russia just a few years before my mother was born. So before that, it was just a European uh, country where Jews were, okay, they were murdered in the Holocaust, yes, but they were at least allowed to speak Yiddish, okay? So uh, they did have more knowledge about Judaism and they were, you know, like Jewish, they were celebrating all the Jewish holidays. My mother's first language was Yiddish. Um, it was very Jewish home and her father was, uh, they were listening to radio, uh, the voice of Israel. And they were dreaming about Israel and it was a very Zionist environment. They were dreaming to be in Israel uh, because the country was very anti-Semitic. And sometimes uh, the anti-Semitic is driving you to be even more of a Zionist, actually, because you have no choice, basically, right? You don't belong anywhere. So they were brought up in a very different environment. And my dad was arrested, actually, before Operation Wedding. He was arrested because he was uh, distributing and writing an anti-Soviet newspaper, uh, basically just poetry. Annette's father describes his resistance. The moment the KGB felt that you are weak, they not give you to live peaceful life. They try to break you down and to create from you secret information of the KGB. So there is no choice. Or you continue to be a hero, or you are broken, so they don't give you choice. You are obliged. If once, by stupidity or some other reasons, you became a resistance, uh, member of resistance movement, you have to continue to be uh, a gain of heroes. You know, but that was enough to get seven years in prison. And not just any prison, it was Vladimir prison. Vladimir prison was considered like the worst prison. There are songs about this prison. He was there for writing poets, basically. Um, not even poets that says kill someone or something like that, just, just against the regime. I was every time punished for something. I really fight against the Soviet system. I really did these things. By the Soviet law, I was really uh, criminals. And I agree with this. I fight it against them. They fight it with me. And after he was released, seven years later, um, then he heard that in Latvia they are letting some Jews leave the country. They, they were letting a thousand Jews. There were three million Jews in the Soviet Union, okay? So they let a thousand, <laughs> let them out because they were too much of an activist or something. They wanted to get rid of some dominant people. And he went to Riga. He fell in love with my mom. They got married six months later. And then they hijacked the empty plane. Were they both working at this point? Well, actually, yes. You know, my mom, she was an engineer. And even though she she asked twice to leave the country legally, because there was an option to ask for a legal exit, but she was refused. And even she, the second time she was told, 
you are not allowed to ask even for the third time. You are refused to be asked even. And you will never see your Israel, your country, you will rot in here. And But still, she didn't lose her job. Like many people who were refused next, they were losing their jobs. But she actually didn't lose her job somehow. And my dad was, uh, she, he was a student of philosophy and he worked in a mental hospital. I'm not sure. And he was translating books from English to Russian. So they were working. Um, they actually even had an apartment in the center of Riga. So it's not like you would imagine. It's not like the normal stories of the Soviet Union that you think of people who live in, in a communal apartment, you know, poor and waiting in line. No, that was not the situation. They had a very comfortable life in that sense. I mean, this sort of growth of of. Jews in the Soviet Union that wanted to leave to go to Israel was was mainly around that Israel had been formed, I think, in 1948. So there was a genuine Jewish homeland now. And that was a big pull for the population in the Soviet Union, I'm thinking. It's very interesting because even at that time, up until 1948, actually, even the Jews in Israel thought that the Jews of the Soviet Union don't care about Israel because they didn't hear anything from them. And the official government was saying that the Jews in the Soviet Union don't have any interest in Israel because they are happy here. Everybody here are equal. We are all marching together towards one common aim. This is what was stated on the other hand you know you have a few events that were happening in in the 40s and the 50s like the doctor plot when you know a few a few doctors were being accused of trying to murder stalin and they won trial but then stalin did actually die and also you have the poet the night of the murdered poet where so jews were not uh, definitely not equal in the soviet union okay some jews had some success in the Soviet Union. I'm not saying that they didn't, but it was definitely, you know, it was harder for them to get into university and it was harder for them to do anything. And they also were expected to delete all identity of Judaism. So in 1948, what happened was that Golda Meir, first ambassador of Israel, she came to the Soviet Union, to Moscow, and she arrived and it was Rosh Hashanah, which is the New Year's of uh, the Jewish New Year. And she arrived to the synagogue and about 50,000 Jews came. Obviously, they didn't have enough space to enter the synagogue. It was outside and they were dancing and they were shouting at her, we are alive, you know, we want to be in Israel. And then she understood we are alive because of the Holocaust, obviously. And then she understood that there are Jews who want to be in Israel, but are not allowed to do that. And then once she arrived back to Israel, she talked to David Ben-Gurion about it, the, the first prime minister of Israel, and he actually created a secret office dedicated only for Soviet Jewry to, to let them out. It was a secret office up, up until the Soviet Union was collapsed. It was called Nativ. Nativ is a path. Your parents have tried the legal route to exit. They're not having any luck. How do they arrive at the plan for Operation Wedding? Whose idea is this? Well, the idea of Operation Wedding actually came from an activist in Leningrad, St. Petersburg today, and he uh, he was teaching a pilot, a Jewish pilot, he was teaching him Hebrew lessons, secretly, obviously, because it was not allowed. And then they started talking about escaping, really, because the Jewish pilot 
was fired from his job because he was Jewish and he then understood that there is no place for him to be there. He needs to be in his home, you know, his uh, heritage homeland. So uh, at first they thought about taking a flying balloon uh, and then they decided to take a huge plane, like 64 seat, huge, I mean, huge in that sense because it was all local flights, but 64 seats plane and to fill it with only Jewish families. Uh, of course, everybody knows what, why they're buying the tickets, where they're going to, and to take the plane outside of the Soviet Union. Of course, if you are flying from uh, Leningrad, it's only a 15 minutes flight to cross the border. I mean, you're, on, you're in the sea, you're still not in another country, but it's basically 15 minutes, so you just need to change your direction and you're outside of Soviet Union. So they were trying to get, they had about 50 people, they were trying to get 10 more. And uh, and the activist, he knew my mother because my mother used to distribute Hebrew learning books uh, in Riga, Leningrad, Kiev. She was just traveling with the Hebrew books on the train and giving them away. So they knew her. And he came to my mom and he said, do you think you have a chance to get out of this country legally? And she said, no. And then he said, do you think you would want to hijack a plane to get out of this country? And she said, yes. And she said, you know, I have, um, I recently got married and my husband is a really brave man. He was in prison already for seven years for anti-Soviet activity. I uh, remind you that in the Soviet Union, if you were in prison, then you're probably one of the good guys. Okay. (laughs) It was a different, different um, situation. So she told my, she told my father, she told her brothers, they told a few other people, they got 10 people, no problem. But then the other 50 people in Leningrad decided to back down of the plan. And they said, we're not going to do it and we don't want you to do it too. And my parents agreed, but my father was traveling to see the pilot in Leningrad and the pilot said, no, I still want to do it. And so they agreed to take a 12-seat plane, a smaller plane, and uh, and they were 16 people. So... You know, obviously they knew they would be caught, but... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. The the whole point was they were hoping maybe after a few years in prison they would be released um, because a lot of the time they would let out people that were in prison already. So uh, they were hoping for that and they were hoping for people in the West to hear about it and fight for them. Of course, they couldn't even imagine the big the the huge reaction that they did have at the end, but they thought something would happen. Yeah. So they knew that they were going to get caught. They knew. It was hopeless to try this, but 
if they did get caught, there would be a lot of publicity around it was what they were pinning their hopes on. They heard about, you know, about all the demonstrations in the United States uh, for human rights. And they were thinking they would they should do something for us too. But they definitely could not have imagined that it would be such a huge impact. I, I don't think anyone can imagine that. So I, I guess because so many people knew about the original plan, that's why they thought that, you know, the KGB must be onto them. Well, yeah, you know, you have 50 people that knew and backed down, but out of the 50 people that knew and backed down, there were another 50 people that knew and said no in the first place. Here's KGB General Oleg Kalugin. The Soviet system in that sense was very simple. <laughs> you, you even, if you uh, have a dinner, uh, and there are more than uh, three people, uh, well, the uh, KGB will get a report about what they talked at the dinner table. And that's father was under no illusion of the dangers. Because in order to recruit 16 people, you have to speak with hundreds of them. And those of them who refuse to participate in this action, of course, uh, they didn't keep silence. Of course, they told it about this plan to their friends, to their lovers, and so on. So told it was impossible to keep in secret. And even recently, I heard, uh, like, I was in one of my, uh, was when I was touring with the film Operation Wedding, I was touring in the States, and, and uh, someone in the crowd said, you know, I was actually, I actually knew about this plan. I was in Leningrad, and I was waiting for them to tell me the date because I, I wanted to join. And they, I was waiting, waiting, and nothing happened. Suddenly, I read about it in the newspaper, and I was so mad because I wanted to be part of it. And no one even told me <laughs> It turned out that the KGB had set things up so the plane was available to them. Here's Anat's uncle describing the arrests. I remember that arrest that uh, they called uh, for uh, boarding the plane, and they, so there was our plane. It was on the there was like small, you know, just in front of the plane was standing. And the KGB guy, apparently, we, at that time, we didn't know, of course, he's KGB. He was like a director, you know, standing here. And uh, on the same time, they, call, uh, they called for another plane, kind of. And they were all KGB were standing. They were standing next to us, like two lines. And uh, at some point, he said, begin, you know, like, or start it, you know, like the command. And everybody, like, jumped on me, jumped in two KGB guys. Some uh, jumped from the plane, some from the bushes, some were with, uh, uh, with assault uh, guns and whatever. And the two guys, they were not very strong, by the way. I, I, at that time, I was, <laughs> I did a lot of sports, uh, gymnastics, whatever. I could easily, I think, handle those two, but I saw there is no... No chance to do anything, so I, I didn't resist. I, they just put, they forced me into the floor, my hands behind me, put uh, the handcuffs. That's what's, and after that, there was a long story of the imprisonment, of course. The thing is, if they, they knew that they would be arrested anyway also, it does matter if you get arrested in the airplane or if you get arrested just like at home and no one hears about it. You know, they wanted to make it a scandal. The thing is that the KGB also wanted to make it a scandal because the KGB 
you know, as much as they were brainwashing other people, they were brainwashing themselves as well. And they were thinking, let's show the world how these people who are fighting for Zionism are actually bullies or are hijacking a plane. But may I remind you, it was an empty plane because they did buy all the tickets of the plane. They're not taking people. They're only risking themselves. That's like a major point. I, I think it's very important because whatever you're fighting for, you cannot risk other people for, for your ideology. They knew they would be caught. And the thing is, I mean, and they thought they might even get shot. You know, it was also a possibility that they took, but they were willing to do it because they felt like their life had no meanings, no meaning if they stay there. They wanted to be only in Israel where they feel like they belong, where no one would tell them you don't belong here. On the same day they, they were arrested, the other 50 that denied the plan, they were also arrested. And a lot of them were released, but some of them received one, two years. And one of them, the person who told my mother about the plan and was not part of it at the end, he received 10 years in prison. What happens to your mother and father after they're, they're caught at the plane? My mom and dad, by the way, also my two uncles, my mothers and fathers. So they were arrested. They were under arrest for six months until the trial started. During those six months, they didn't get any newspaper, no lawyers, no nothing, no visiting. They were completely separated from each other, so they had no idea what was happening. They were under investigations. I don't know what's the point of the investigations anyway, because they were not hiding anything, basically. Um, and then the trial happened in December 1970. And that was the first time that they saw each other. They had a lawyer also, and they saw their families in the trial. How did the trial work? Everybody were tried together, except for my mother's brother, who was in the Soviet army. So he had a, he had a military trial. Luckily for him, the trial started um, three weeks after their trial. So he didn't receive a death sentence. But if his trial was before, he would probably would have received a death sentence. But he received only 10 years. Because it was after the demonstration was happening. So in the trial, there were 11 people. Four of the other women, except for my mother, were released before the trial. So my mother was the only woman in the trial. And she was the first one to go on the stand. And she said, if you, wouldn't, if you would have let us leave... And then we would have never, thinking of doing something illegal, we would have just bought the tickets and go to Israel. And even today on trial, I believe that someday I will be in Israel. And so I say to my people, next year in Jerusalem. And she said that in Hebrew. So everybody were very brave on this trial, everybody. And because people, they knew that if, if they asked for forgiveness or mercy, they would receive less years. But no one asked for this. Everybody said, we don't feel like we did anything wrong. We just wanted to be in our country. Annette's uncle and her father described the end of her mother's trial. I felt that uh, she, well, she's apparently going to be in trouble because it will definitely... She, she will get more, you know, because Russians are very, how to say, 
they're very unforgiving for uh, somebody who is trying to, to stand up uh, and speak out. Maybe it was the first time in the Soviet history that the people didn't uh, ask for mercy and stayed on their position and openly declared that they want to leave this country and nobody will stop them. And what was the sentence for your mother? My mother received 10 years of harsh labor in a, in a labor camp near Siberia. And my father and the pilot received death sentence. Annette's father describes his reaction to the death sentence. Oh, okay, I received this death sentence as I expected and tried to to control my feelings, not to show that I am afraid. Here's Annette's uncle again. Eduard Kuznetsov, I remember his words. After the, he was sentenced to death, and he told me some of our friends get... Um, it's funny, so I don't make it. Um, it was very it's emotional because I remember my feeling. Okay, at that time he told me that some of our friends get um, permit to leave to Israel. So somebody got um, got freedom because of us. So it was not that bad after all. You know, there was some good about about this. And the rest of the group received between um, four to fifteen years in prison. Wow. What sort of conditions was your mother held under? Was under very harsh conditions. You can see it in the film. My film. We were visiting uh, the place that my mother stayed during the arrest. It was very difficult for me to see it because um, I didn't even imagine. I was so naive, you know. I was imagining like regular prisons, like our, you know, prison or American or whatever. But not like this is. Uh, this is definitely very. <laughs> Like the moment you get in there, you're feeling extremely depressed. It's uh, no light, no windows, no nothing. Like it's just, uh, it's just terrible. It's a terrible place. It's a very, it's a very powerful moment in in the film. You know, you see the conditions, and your mother wa- walks out into where the exercise yard was and starts dancing. And that's what she apparently she she used to do is to try and presumably imagine the music and and just to try and live the life that she had, but within the confines of of the prison. It's incredible. Yes, I I think it's definitely when when it happened when she started dancing, I realized this is this is the most powerful scene in my film. You know, she started dancing the walls in the prison yard. Um, you know, a few years later, we went to the same prison and we had the, the Latvian premiere of the film there. So that was a closure. And I thought to myself, oh, I wish I could tell my mom when she was 25. I wish I could have told her that just in a few years, you know, her daughter will make a film and will do the premiere in this in this very prison. 
there will be the premiere. I, I wish I could have told her, you know, it might have been a comfort somehow. What was the international reaction to the trial and the sentences? It was an immediate reaction. And it's very interesting because I have, you know, archives from demonstrations before the trial that there were after the arrest and before the trial, you see uh, 50 people. There was one demonstration of a thousand people. You know, it was pretty big. But then after the sentences, it was absolutely amazing to see areas were completely closed down for demonstrations, you know, New York and London and, and Paris and Australia and Spain, all over the world. They were demonstrating because how can you give a death sentence for people who just wanted to escape without hurting anyone? They weren't hurting anyone. And on the same time, and this is actually connected and important to the story because on the same time in Spain, there were six death sentences for Basque who killed two policemen. They actually killed two policemen. They, they were terrorists. And, um, and so, and Brezhnev, it was, he was trying to, uh, uh, because, you know, uh, in Spain, it was the dictator. Francesco Franco, who was a fascist. So there was always a fight between fascism and communism, right? Which is, by the way, you know, for me, it's the same, basically, but okay. Um, so the communists were saying, look at these horrible death sentences in Spain, but then suddenly they give death sentences in, in Soviet Union for nothing. At least in Spain, they killed someone, so it makes sense. Golda Meir, the Prime Minister of Israel, that time she asked uh, Franco to commute the sentences to save the Jews, you know, basically, because they knew that uh, Brezhnev would have to fold if Francisco Franco is given a commute sentences, then he will have to do it too. And that's what happened. Uh, Franco gave, commuted the death sentences to 60 years in prison. The day, the following day, Brezhnev commuted the death sentences of my father and the pilot. So here you go. He's the more humane once again in his eyes. Here's how Anat's father heard the news. He called me from the cell. I was sitting in the special cell for people who sent us to death. It was uh, on the 31st of December, about 11 o'clock at night. Can you imagine how I was afraid that uh, I decided that 31st of December, before the new year, at 11 o'clock at night, definitely they want, they want to kill me. What, what was your father's sentence commuted to? To 15 years, and also the pilot, 15, 15 years of harsh labour. Though my dad said that his first term in prison the one that was for the poetry was much harder than the second time, the conditions. It was a different time. It was the 60s and the 70s were a different time in the Soviet Union. So uh, he said in the 60s it was hunger, they were starving them, and he had no mattress to sleep on, you know. So I found it interesting that, you know, Golda Meir managed to have that influence over Franco. Well, you know, she gave him the message. He did do that. I don't know if it was only because she told him that. I, there was a lot of pressure on him as well. 
So, and he did give them 60 years. It's not like he released them. So maybe he also wanted to annoy Brezhnev. You know, maybe that was also part of his uh, thought. I don't think it was because he was such a kind-hearted dictator that he wanted to save, you know, the people. I think he had other reasons, but who cares? You know, my father was alive thanks to that. So that's fine by me. I think it was in Spain and the Soviet Union's interest to uh, try and build relations with the West. I think Franco wanted to uh, no longer be such a international pariah and uh, Brezhnev was desperate for uh, economic relations with the West. Were both your mother and father held in solitary confinement? My dad, no, but my mom, she hit, she was hitting an uh, anti-Semitic prisoner. She was hitting her very hard, and and so she was sent to solitary confinement for six months. And that was during the winter, and she they didn't give her any blanket, only at night a thin blanket. She could only wear a thin cotton dress. So she had to jump up and down to keep warm. That was the situation for six months. I do not know how she was able to stay sane during that time, to be honest. It's like, I cannot understand. It's just, (laughs) she's a very strong person. She is. She is. Um, And that was really nice when I was able to uh, see her when we were preparing for this um, conversation as well but that's incredible resilience incredible Mm -hmm. so the protests are going on in the u.s and and around the the rest of the world what impact does that have one week after the death sentence were commuted the first airplane filled with jews was going to israel so in the first year after their arrest, already 40,000 Jews were allowed to leave. And the the following nine years was 254,000 Jews. Wow. And prior to that, what would it would have been? Tens, hundreds? Well, uh, in the 60s, 1960 to 1969, there were only 3,000 Jews allowed out. So you, yeah, so that's, you can see the difference, obviously. But still, not everybody were allowed to leave. Not everybody. You still have to ask for permission. Only some received, some did not. And in the 80s, they closed it up again. Yeah, because I think what the Soviets used to do is say, well, if these people know stuff that we think is secret, then we're not going to let you go out because your head has Soviet secrets inside it. Well, I I think actually they were holding people like slaves, right? Because the whole country, the the only jobs were government jobs. And if you suddenly are able to to have businesses outside the Soviet Union, you can leave, you can get out. Maybe you'll be like smarter. Maybe you'll be able to rise up against the regime. I think they were just trying to make people the slaves of their countries, prisoners of their country. And they didn't want them free. because they were afraid the Soviet Union will collapse because of that. So did your mother serve her full sentence? She was released after four years. It was thanks to a secret spy exchange. A spy was caught, a Soviet spy was caught in Israel. 
but no one knew about it. It was a secret. And, and uh, of course, the KGB, they didn't just want to release my mom. They want to show that they are humanitarians, you know, that this is why they release her. So they come to my mom and they tell her, we can release you and let you go to Israel if you just say that you are sick and you are asking for amnesty. And she said, I will never ask you for anything. And I'll remind you that she thought she still have six more years to go and they're not asking her for, to say forgiveness. They just say, you know, just say that you're sick and we'll let you go because you're sick. And she she just didn't trust them. And she had very strong instincts. Um, they still had to let her go. So they did let her go. Ruth Bar on from the Israel Council for Soviet Jewry describes Anat's mother's release. Silva was... Uh, exchanged for uh, a spy, Yuri uh, Linov. For us, it didn't matter. It was Yuri Linov or someone else. We just wanted her out. Out, and we were so grateful that there was someone that one could uh, exchange her for. If you only knew how many thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, wanted to come to meet her, you know, Silva was really a symbol of the heroism the world over. And when she arrived in Israel, everybody wanted to be there, Israelis and non-Israelis. If you could sell hundreds of thousands of tickets, you, you would have sold them because, I mean, really everybody wanted to be there. And, um, and she, was in, she came to Israel and immediately started learning English and Hebrew very quickly to start doing speeches in Israel and around the world. She was traveling a lot to mainly to England and to New York, um, uh, where the main activities were. And uh, Your mother, has she spoken to you about what it was like being released and, you know, that, that whole experience and how she felt? She told me she was, you know, she felt she came to Israel and, on the first day in Israel, she felt that finally she's home. She never felt at home in Latvia, even though we have seven generations of our family there. She never felt at home. And by the way, when we were traveling to Latvia for the premiere, uh, for the filming and for the premiere of the film, she also, she said, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful country, but she doesn't have any feeling for it. She doesn't feel like you know, nostalgic or anything. It's just, it's just the place. And the first day she came to Israel, she felt at home and she loved everybody. But of course, she felt very guilty. She was the first one to be released. She felt very guilty that leaving everybody else behind. So she wasn't happy until everybody was released, obviously. And when when does your father get released? How long is he held for? So he was uh, released after nine years at the end. And it was thanks to uh, to Soviet spies that were caught in New Jersey. So they were able to exchange them for eight prisoners. Five of them were group members. So my father, the pilot, my uncle, they were all released thanks to that exchange. And so my mother and father met in New York. And there was a huge rally, 250,000 people to welcome them in front of the UN. And uh, after that, after three days in New York, they came to Israel. The, you know, the, the hijacking was really the almost the catalyst for 
the release of Soviet Jews from the from the Soviet Union in in significant numbers. It was because um, they it brought awareness and it it made the struggle from small to huge and um and the struggle went on for another 20 years and i tell you i talked to a lot of the activists leaders of the activists in the in the free world and they all say we didn't believe we we're going to succeed we did not believe that the soviet union would be brought down and we couldn't even imagine that would happen in our lifetime but they started demonstrating and suddenly my father and the, the pilot death sentences are commuted to 15 years and suddenly Jews are starting to get out so they see that there is a result and they continue, continue and those people, the activists, they were for you know for more than 20 years, every day their whole life was dedicated to that and that's amazing because they didn't know those people, it's not like a personal but by the way um, my mother did have family in Israel and they were the first to uh, do a hunger strike at the Wailing Wall. And actually, uh, the demonstrations actually started uh, from them. You know, they, they brought the, the first, you know, big awareness. So it was thanks to family as well. But, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> it's just an incredible story because just, just to have that, you know, that desperation to uh, want to leave a um, country like that and to take those risks... And as you say, I mean, the effect that it had was, okay, it was 12, 16 people trying to hijack a plane, but it ended up with freeing hundreds of thousands of people from the Soviet Union. It changed the world. And you can see it's very interesting because those are people that had no political effect. It's just like regular civilians, you know, and you, you can be inspired by that to see how we can change the world without being violent to others. And that's important for me to say. Tell us about the film and the experience of, of making that film. Well, uh, it took me four long years of uh, full time to... I dedicated myself to make this film. It was very difficult to raise the funds to do it. Um, there were a few moments that I thought that it's going to fail. But it was an eye-opening experience. I got closer to my parents. I got so invested in the story that after I finished the film, I felt like it's not enough. And I went on and created an educational program with the, Prime, with the Israeli Prime Minister Office and also with the Educational Ministry in Israel. And I'm so happy that now they actually entered it to the educational program because uh, for many, many years in Israel, they didn't teach about the Soviet Jewish struggle, which was a very important part of definitely of the world history, but definitely of Jewish and Israeli history, not just Soviet Jewry. It's just part of our history in general because it was a struggle of everyone. And so, um, so it became a project, a nine years project. And only now I'm starting to work on other projects. I highly recommend Anat's film. Some really powerful testimony there and uh, loads more detail that we've not been able to cover within the podcast. 
Just search for Operation Wedding on YouTube and you'll find the full-length version there, but uh, we've also got it in the episode notes. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information